you know that you're going to incur losses by keeping them in the job because they're not doing a good job. But when you ask them, why aren't you letting that person go? Why aren't you moving them into a different role or exiting them? They'll say, well, what if the new person I find isn't good? It's like, okay, but the person you have isn't good. So, so what's going on there, right? Like, that's the question. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Annie Duke. Annie was a professional poker player for 18 years. She dropped out of grad school and needed to make some money. So a brother taught her to play poker and every day she went and played poker. In the end, she found herself on TV, winning tournaments on TV. She's written two books. One is called Thinking in Bets and the other is called Quit. The first one is around what she learned from playing poker and how to bring decision-making process from poker to individuals, entrepreneurs, the world. And we chat a bit about that as we talk on the podcast today. And her second book is called Quit, which is The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Great conversation. I think you will really like the bit when we talk about why is it so hard for us as human beings, entrepreneurs, managers, CEOs, to fire people. We dig into the neuroscience of why it's hard And Annie also, she works as an executive coach and she also talks about a methodology she uses people where she gives them some things to do over a six-week period. And most of the time, 60% of the time, she says the employee will quit rather than you having to fire them. But she thinks it's a really useful technique to use. I would say I probably have conversations with people every week about how hard it is to fire people, let people go. And so I found that particularly interesting. And I'm sure many of you will be able to put that to work straight away. So great conversation with Annie. I don't think we talked about her books at all. So if you thought this was great, go buy her books from Amazon or other good booksellers. Great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, Annie Duke, author, most recently of the book Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space, lapsed poker player, and uh, lapsed academic actually until recently when I came back to academics. Very good. So you were saying in, in your book, Thinking in Bets, you talk about being on the lam from your academic career. And you were just saying to me before we started recording that you, you're finishing finishing your dissertation in February, is that? Yeah. So th- this was kind of accidental. During COVID, uh, Phil Tetlock, who wrote the book, book Super Forecasting. And his wife, Barb Mellers, asked me to come and do some research in their lab, mainly because they, they've 
you know, they know they know what that I write in this space. And um, I'm also a teacher of decision making for people, um, both through my consulting, but I actually teach. Uh, so I teach executive ed at Wharton. And I think that they they were hoping that I might be able to create a good training, which is really teaching, um, a good training to help uh, novices become better forecasters. So uh, their work has been concentrated with what you would call super forecasters, which are people who naturally are just really good at predicting the future, not in like a psychic sense, but like in a probabilistic sense, like you know, like good weathermen, but for like, is a war going to break out, you know, in Ukraine? Their work is amazing. And they've done a whole bunch of work on like, what are the features of people who are really good at that? And also sort of how might you create an environment that would allow them to become even better? What would the processes be that would help them do that? But uh, they were working with novices. So people who had never done any forecasting, who didn't sort of select in, you know, just working with MTurk workers or whatever. So so they asked me if I would help create a training for that. Um, and then further asked me, like, how would you actually test whether the training was working? So I was like, sure. Like, it was during COVID. I, it's not like I had a lot better to do at the time. I mean, I was working, but, you know, there wasn't like going out to dinner or like stuff that I needed to do on the weekend. So I was like, sure, yeah, I'll totally do that. So we ended up doing four very large-scale studies that got really fantastic results in terms of our ability to help people to figure out how you might predict how the world would unfold, who had never done it before. And at the end of it, after we had done all the work, Phil and Barb just kind of said to me, you know, you could write these four studies up and it would really be a dissertation. So I was like, well, that seems like a pretty low lift because I just accidentally did all of the work for it. <laughs> and um, so then it was just a process. It, it took a little bit because when you leave academics for as long as I did, you do what's called sunsetting, uh, which means you haven't shown up on campus in 10 years. And there was just some bureaucracy in terms of like, how you know, re-enrolling, what would be the requirements in order for me able to actually get my PhD. But uh, that's all settled now. I enrolled in September uh, and I'm doing uh, one exam in two weeks uh, and then February. I'm Doctor, planning you... to defend my dissertation. We'll see. I mean, I guess I could fail. Yeah, hardly. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> and so I'm intrigued though. So these novices who were on the study groups were predicting the future at a global level. Yeah, no. So they they weren't. This was a little bit more constrained. So they weren't they weren't actually predicting the future. They were predicting how things would have turned out if you had changed something about the past. Okay. So this is so there's two different types of forecasting that we can think of. Uh one is prospective, meaning how do you think things are going to f- unfold over the next coming months, but you could you could think about it like uh here would be a very simple forecast. Gary Kasparov and Dom are going to play a game of chess, right? Like how long do you think it will be before Kasparov che- checkmates? Yes, checkmates well, Dom. Well, I don't know. I don't know. What, how, how quickly can you checkmate somebody? How, what's the, the, question, the least number right? of moves possible? And that's probably what it would so be. So that, like, that would be like a very simple forecast. Like we make these perspective forecasts all the time. In fact, 
really, it's just true that any decision we make involves a forecast. So if I'm thinking about like deciding what route I want to take for work, that would be a prospective forecast. Specifically, I'm choosing among options and I'm forecasting for each option, which thing I think is, let's say that I want to get there quickly, which route is going to get me there the fastest. And then I'm also making a prediction about how long it will take me because that determines when I would leave my house. Right. So so these forecasts are 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 always involved in our decision making. So that would be prospective. But we also do what's called counterfactual forecasting. And counterfactual forecasting is retrospective, where, you know, there's the classic one, what if you had killed baby Hitler? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's a counterfactual forecast where we're thinking about if we had changed some sort of condition in the past, how would that have affected the way that things unfolded? Right. So now obviously. For most things like that, you can't actually know the answer, right? It's like hypothetical. We're pondering. But there are things about which you could know the answer. And it's if you put somebody in a simulation. So in our case, we were simulating a pretty simple card game. And um, they would see these two bots who played cards against each other. So they would kind of like know the history of the two bots. And then they would see a game that the bots had played. And then we would ask them, what if they had done this on this turn? How many points do you think the bots would have scored? Uh, what do you think the probability that one or the other bot would have won the game? So you could imagine like in the game with you and Kasparov, I could go back and say, well, what do you think would have happened if Don had moved his bishop instead of his knight? How do you think the game might have unfolded? So um, uh-huh. a lot of, if you think of like a lot of our learning, you know, how do we think about making better decisions is actually done through this type of counterfactual forecasting. Because, you know, we'll we'll think like in a business strategy, like, well, what if we had done this different thing? What if we had used this different marketing campaign? What if we had launched it at a different time? What if COVID hadn't happened, right? So so that's like, would be a pretty common one right now. You have a business that falters and you say, well, what if COVID hadn't happened? Would that have changed the trajectory of my business? And so this is something that we naturally do. um, And it just turns out we're very bad at it. Um, and so we were just looking at, well, we're we're bad at these things in general because there's a lot of cognitive biases that get in the way. Um, in particular, uh, there's we're very deterministic in the way that we think. So we think that the way things have turned out was predetermined in some way. Like that's just kind of the way our minds work. And so it yeah. just turns out when you ask people to change things about the past, um, they'll generally converge on on something similar to what ended up happening anyway. Um, that's sort of one way that things can go wrong. The other thing is you get anchored to the result that you actually saw. Um, there's just a whole bunch of things that go wrong with these types of forecasts. Uh, and and the other thing is that people don't know where to start. So you have to think about like when, when I see something that occurs in the world, I don't actually know if it's the average result. I don't know if it's way out at the tails, like super unusual, like a 1% thing that could have happened in the world. And so when I'm going back to like change things about what happened, it would be helpful to know, was this the usual thing that would happen? Or was this like a really big freak event? Because it's going to change how I'm going to think about that. Right. But we don't, we don't, we don't actually have access to the, to the distribution. Right. So Anyway, it just turns out that this is a very hard problem, but it's like super integral 
to our decision-making. So we were just, we were just doing training to help people become better at that. And it turns out that you can really actually improve people's performance. That was very eggheady and academic, just like to dive in and start this. Two things sprung to mind as you were talking there. One was, I've just finished a book by Max Hastings called Abyss, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And 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 what is amazing is that there are times when uh, JFK leaves the heads of the Army, Air Force and Navy together to talk. And what they don't know is that at the time, there was always a tape recorder running in the situation room. And so you've got you've got what they say to him to his face and then what they say when he's not in the room. And and it's just incredible that he managed to not bomb the Russians and go to war because over and over and over again, they were all for, you know, invading and bombing and sinking ships. And and yet he resisted that he resisted their counsel. And so that would be you know, that would be, that, that That just sprung to mind as one of those examples where yeah. you'd be like, well, we know what happened. And there were so many, that you can actually look at that data and go, you can see all these things that, where the, you know, the result nearly changed. Yeah. I mean, we, we can think about one now, which is what, what if NATO had stood up to Putin when he invaded Crimea? Yeah. What would that mean for the war today? Right. So, so these are very common this is a very common thing that we ponder. And it's actually a, a lot, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to work out like what are the decisions that we want to make going forward, right? So if we think, for example, that standing up to Putin in, in Crimea would have actually changed the trajectory, like would have changed what happened with the war, that's going to affect our decision-making going forward in terms of how muscular we are with foreign powers or how much, say, we take a Chamberlain type of route with people, yeah. so on and so forth. So it it actually changes. Uh, you're actually trying to work out like what you're going to do going forward by thinking about the past and imagining that things have been different. So it's it's an incredibly important part of our decision making. Interestingly enough, not very well studied. There just isn't a lot of work in this area in terms of like how do we deal with these counterfactuals. And part of the reason is because we can't know the answer. So if you think about like forecasting. Like, I could ask you to forecast from here how much longer you think the war in Ukraine is going to last, right? And I could have you make like a bunch of those forecasts that are prospective. Um, And then if I make sure that they're short cycle enough, I can actually get an answer during your lifetime. And then I can start to say, like, how good is Dom at forecasting? If I train Dom in a certain way, can I make him better at forecasting? If I put him in certain environments, are some people better at it than others? Um, because I can look across your forecast and see across your forecast, like how accurate are you? Because I'm talking about things that haven't happened yet. So therefore I can I can go and I can end, end up actually finding out the answer. But when we're thinking counterfactually, we can't, how are we supposed to know, right? Like, okay, I changed something about Crimea. What does that mean? It's interesting because I, when Putin invaded, I thought this is it's over, be over in about five or six weeks, which I guess he did too. You and the American intelligence community. Yeah. <laughs> But then once the momentum died, like in business, you so often see these companies that have growth and then they hit this stall point and very few of them recover from a stall. And so it's the same, I think, in so many other things. You hit a stall point and you just, you, you can't regain the momentum. And so they, once the momentum had swung to the Ukrainians, it's like, well, actually, I think the only way is to him to back out. So, Well, he, he's not going to do that. So uh, no, but not, not only. So, so if I were to forecast, I would say the probability that he backs out in other, 
you know, and by back out, I would include not just the voluntarily withdrawal, but, but, you know, people have been talking about, well, what kind of offer up could you offer him? And I would put a very high probability that there is no off ramp lest either winning the war, whatever that definition is, which he's already declared would be basically taking the whole thing, or he would have to redefine what it means to win it, which could be like, I mean, he tried that for a second, right? Because he tried to get that, that you know, he did the referendum and- Yeah, Donbass region. Right, exactly. So he could redefine what winning means. So, but that's one way that he'll, that the war will stop is he'll quote unquote win. And the other thing I think is like de- being deposed or death. Uh, and that's where I would, I would create this very fat tailed distribution where I would really, I would say, I think it's low probability at this point that he wins or whatever redefining winning is. Cause he can't say winning is just keeping Crimea, right? Like that's not going to be a win. So I put a low probability on that side of the distribution, but a very high probability on something happens where he's gone, right? Like, and that's going to happen where either, like, it's just so clear, like they've lost the war, they don't have anybody else to come in, right? So it's literally like, he's going to have no choice. Yeah. He's not, not, there's going to be no voluntarily, like the chances of a voluntary withdrawal by Putin, I would put it well less than five, like five, less than 5%. And the, the reason has to do with actually the way that our minds work when it comes to quitting things. So he's in a situation where we can think about the forces that make it really hard for us to stop things. And all of them are at play here. So first of all, there's just very simply something called the sunk cost effect or the sunk cost fallacy, which is we take into account what we've already spent when we're trying to decide whether to spend more. And whenever you get into a situation that has to do with war, the costs are quite great and grave. So it's not just the amount of money that's been dumped into the war, but it's the lives that have been lost. And you saw this with uh, the U.S. in uh, Vietnam, where you know you you start to accumulate these losses, and despite the fact that all all signs are saying, you know, hey, you're not winning this thing, um, <laughs> you know, you see, you know, people doubling down on the effort and committing more troops. And more money and more equipment to that that war, and in fact, that particular war like inspired a lot of the research around what we call escalation of commitment, which is you're getting signals that you're losing, and and yet you're doubling down right on, on the cause. We saw this in Afghanistan, certainly. That's how we end up for 20 years in something that um, at no point were we doing well, and you're seeing this with Putin, right? So you know. It as you said, like the the effort stalls. Uh, he's getting somewhat humiliated, um, and what does he does? He conscripts three hundred thousand more people. He doesn't say, you know what? We underestimated the Ukrainians. This has cost a lot of money. Our equipment is failing. Obviously, things aren't aren't going well. I think we should stop. Right. So we don't we don't see that happen. Instead, conscript three hundred thousand more people. But the bigger problem for Putin has to do with identity which is a huge issue when it comes to stopping. When your identity is tied into the thing that you're doing, then it becomes very, very difficult to stop what you're doing, particularly when you are uh, standing out from the crowd, right? When you're going against what the rest of the world thinks you should be doing. Like zero COVID in China. Exactly. Where they won't stop. It's like, not only are they not stopping, but they didn't even vaccinate anybody. Yeah. 
they were just like, oh, be in your, and, and they're, they're not backing off of that stance. You have to double down because otherwise you have to admit that you might have been wrong in the past and you can't admit you were wrong in the past and therefore you have to double down. And therefore you have to double down. So this identity thing is actually really big, right? So when our identity is integrated into the thing that we're doing, it becomes very hard to walk away because you have to walk away from your identity. It means that you're wrong. Like, who am I? And in Putin's case, of course, you're talking about not just his own identity, but national identity. So the interesting thing, though, is that when the owner of the decision goes away, then it becomes much easier to, to quit, to stop. So if Putin were to be deposed, the new people who came in can say, that wasn't our decision. This, this war is stupid. We're going to bring everybody home. So, so that would be you know, easy. It's interesting because when I'm coaching fast-growing businesses, one of the things I say to them is, look, let's really be clear and, and make sure that we don't have people's identity linked to their job titles. Because, you know, here you are as a smallish company and Fred thinks he's the CMO. And then all of a sudden, Fred can no longer be the CMO, but he won't give it up because his identity is attached. And so you are, uh, the, just a form of words around you are the current chief marketing officer rather than you are it can be really helpful to allow people to give up and step sideways or take a different role or fill a different seat Yeah, so that you try not to get stuck in that. Because that happens all the time in businesses where the, the job gets bigger than either the job gets bigger or the world turns upside down and people aren't the best person for the role anymore, but their identity is linked to the role. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little bit like, so again, at that point, well, it's a two-sided problem. So on the the side of the person who's in the CMO role, it really requires a fresh start. So it generally doesn't work very well for them to step below that and like take a different role, right? But if they go to a different company, they can. Because um, again, their identity isn't in it. The, the sunk cost, the what it, there's something called external validity. How are other people going to judge me? Separate and apart from internal validity, how do I think about myself? It's just very difficult. And and I generally, uh, I've, I find that it doesn't work very often for someone to step out of a role into a new one where the role, where the move is not parallel or better, right? That, but they can do it if they go to a different place. But it's a two-sided problem, which is that, uh, and this is something that I end up coaching executives about all the time is that from the executive side, they don't want to move the person out of the role either. And there's a variety of reasons for that also, a lot of which goes under the category of, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, uh -huh. Some of it goes to, under the category, actually, similarly of what does that mean for my decision to have I put them in the role in the first place? Yeah. Um, the status quo is really hard to break. Sometimes it's in the, particularly in a fast growing business, we're a meritocracy, we've promoted them. I believe in the fantasy that this person's gone from zero to hero whilst I've been leading the business. Because you made a decision, like you staked, you staked the decision to, to put them in that role. And this, this is very Putin-like, right? You made the decision to put them in that role. If they're not good for the role and you decide that you need to exit them, what does that mean for your decision-making? It becomes, the, these things become very like hard to, to sort of unravel. And then what I think is really interesting in these situations is that, so there's, there's this concept, which is loss aversion. 
And loss aversion is part of prospect theory, which was developed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Daniel Kahneman actually won a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, Amos Tversky was had passed by the time the Nobel Prize was awarded. But one of the key findings of prospect theory is some is something called loss aversion, which is that we, when we're thinking about wanting to start something, we focus much more on the downside than we do on the upside. And that in retrospect, like when we incur a loss, it feels somewhere around two times as bad to us as the equivalent gain would feel good to us. So if you lose $50 at blackjack, it will feel as bad to you as winning $100 feels good to you. Okay, so we just have this asymmetry around like losses. And then when we're thinking about starting things, we're like anticipating the loss so that it stops us from starting stuff. So uh, an example would be, we'll take like a low volatility, low expected value investment, like low ROI investment over a higher volatility, higher ROI investment. Why? Because the lower volatility means you're less likely to incur a loss, even though you're not getting as much in return, right? Yeah, and the other thing, as you were talking there, I was thinking, is if you think about people returning to work post-COVID and working from home versus working from the office, the other thing I've seen, and I don't know, I don't know where the theory lies, I don't know who to credit, but there's definitely a sense that as human beings... I can clearly see what I'm giving up if no longer working from home, but I can't, and I can think I can project myself forward into the, into the gain, but actually what you, the way you think you're going to feel about something is, the, is never the way you end up feeling about it. Right. So, so this is what ends up happening. Let's set aside like work from home for a second because people like that. And that goes into a category where we're going to add in something else, which is called sure loss aversion. So let's do loss aversion first, and then we'll add in the second concept because it piles on top of each other. It's very bad, right? It's like, it's all like, it's like a dog pile. So loss aversion, because you focus on the downside, what I'll see happen, and I, I coach people on this all the time. It's like, you've got this person, you've promoted them to CMO. There's a bunch of things that have to do with your ownership over that decision, uh, that's making it hard for you to stop. But uh, what you, you'll you also get is, but what if I get someone new in the role and they're really bad? So I'm sure you've heard yeah. that before, right? Oh, yeah, totally. To which I reply, well, that doesn't have to be true. Right. Well, because, and the person that you're that is in the role is not up to the job. Yeah. So what's very interesting is that they're not thinking in the same way about the losses that they're going to incur from the status quo, right? Like you've got someone who's not performing in the job. So you know that you're going to incur losses by keeping them in the job because they're not doing a good job. But when you ask them, why aren't you letting that person go? Why aren't you moving them into a different role or exiting them? They'll say, well, what if the new person I find isn't good? It's like, okay, but the person you have isn't good. So, so what's going on there, right? Like that's the question, what's going on there? And it turns out, that loss aversion is is for starting things. So we there's an asymmetry. When we get this big focus on the downside, it's for starting something new. And yeah. we don't recruit it into the decision to stick with the status quo in the same way. So even though obviously it's like, yeah, but you know, you've got like a hundred percent certainty that the person isn't good. If you get someone new, they could be bad, but they could also be good. So obviously that's better. It doesn't matter because they only focus on the bad side of the equation and so they won't switch. It's a very weird quirk of our cognition, 
but it's a really big problem. So the way that I've actually started coaching people into that is what I say is, would it be better to have nobody in the role? Um, So I kind of try to get them away from what if you hire someone new and they're bad? And I say, well, what if you had no one in the role? What would happen? And we actually work through like, well, their team would start to pick up the slack. And then we start to talk about like, do you think they're acting as a blocker for the team? Because they're in the role, nobody, you know, there's certain parts of their job that people can't do, right? And then we'll sort of get into this idea of them being blockers in the role. And what happens when you have someone who's not performing in a role is that the answer to would it be better to have nobody in the role is always yes. It's sort of definitionally so. It's just yes. So I've learned to stop saying, but maybe the person that you get would be really good. And instead I say, but what if you had no one? Would it be better? And this helps to sort of get out of that world of loss aversion because now they're not going to start something new. So it's that it's getting them to focus on the subtraction as opposed to the addition because the addition is what's really making their minds go. And that's an incredibly effective, I've found, an incredibly effective way to get people to see that somebody needs to be exited. I have this conversation with people almost every week. And, you know, we, I, was doing a, I was doing a session with some CEOs and founders of some businesses recently. And, and the question that we were debating was, who is your worst hire? Yeah. And this lady said, my worst hire is my PA. I said, when did you hire her? She said, two years ago. And she went on to tell me how, she, how awful she was at everything. And I said, well, you need to get rid of her this afternoon then. But I've put so much time into her. <laughs> I've, I've, it's so much training. I was thinking of sending her on another training course and it's just like, yep. what? So, so this is very classic escalation of commitment, right? Which is all signs point to no. And, and it's like, I've put so much time into her. I've put so much energy into her. You made the original decision to hire them. You always feel like the change is going to be right around the corner, right? And then you say, but what if I get somebody new and they're really bad, right? And it's just like, look, if someone's screwing your schedule up, it would obviously be better to have nobody in the role. Like just do your own calendar for a while while you're looking for somebody. But we get this escalation and then it goes on and on. So when I'm coaching people around this, and I have to say like, it's pretty interesting in some of the work that I do. So when I'm, particularly when I'm working with growth companies, a lot of the coaching that I'm doing around decision-making is getting people to let people go because this it's, it's the thing that people are the worst at is letting underperforming people go. And when you're in a high growth environment, obviously you have to do this a lot because you have people who are hired ahead and, you know, they were fine when you had six people in your company, but a lot of those people don't grow into a role where all of a sudden you've got 200 people in your company. Some do, but a lot don't. And, you know, you're sort of making a bet that the person is talented and they're going to be able to get there, but it doesn't always happen that way. And so in these high growth environments, you're ending up with like, as you said, like shifting roles, people don't grow into the role or the role outgrows them. Um, so on and so forth. So this is something that you actually have to be doing quite a bit. It's it's one of the things you have to do in order to be successful in that period for a company. And people are just crap at it. They're so bad at it. So what I do is make them set deadlines because otherwise you end up like this woman who has this PA for two years, who's like her worst hire and she's known it for two years. So <laughs> what? I, so I have them set something called kill criteria. And these these include both 
states of the world or states of the employer, states of the relationship and a date. So the way that I'll work through it with somebody is I'll say, Dom, you've got a PA. They're terrible. Yes. When did you hire them? Two years ago. My head quietly explodes. And then I say, okay, so let's not worry about that. Let's think going forward. How long are you okay with the situation as it stands? So that's what I'll ask. Um, you know, and, and generally by the time that we're having this conversation, it's a pretty short timeline, right? People aren't, aren't saying like, I'm okay with this for six more months. You know, they're, they're like, uh, six weeks. Okay. So you're all right with the situation as it stands for six more weeks. Fine. That's the deadline. Six weeks. In six weeks, what are the signals that you would see that would tell you this person needs to be exited? And we write those down. What are the signals that you would see that would tell you this person has turned it around? And we write those down. Then I say, please write down the inputs. What are the things that you would have to do over the next six weeks or they would have to do in order to get to the good side of the equation? So we write those down. Then I say, now I want you to go talk to the employee. I don't want you to hand them the list. What I want you to do instead is you've got this list in mind. I want you to go and say, Dom, let's both agree that things aren't going well. And then Dom is obviously going to agree and tell me that they can turn it around, that they really, they love their job and they want to turn it around and so on and so forth. Don't disagree with them. Say, I agree with you. I think that you can turn this around. So let's imagine it's six weeks from now. What does turn it around look like? And get Dom to start generating, like, what does he think turning it around looks like? And obviously you're going to be sort of guiding into what you think, Turn, you know, you're going to say, well, what about this, you know, and whatever. And you're going to do this in a collaborative way. And then you're going to say, okay, now let's imagine just in six weeks, things aren't going, you know, still aren't going well. Like, what do you think that looks like, Dom? And now we create that list. And then I say, what do you need from me to create the good version of the world, right? So now we've generated this collaboratively together and we've got this list. And I say, okay, I promise I'm going to give you the support that you need, you know, within reason. We've agreed what that's going to be. Maybe I send you off to that one more training. That's fine. And then we're going to revisit this in six weeks and we're going to see where we are. Okay. So, so notice now you can't sit because the problem, how do you get into this situation for two years? Because tomorrow is always tomorrow because turning around is always around the corner. Right. And it's so painful for us to let somebody go that we won't do it. The interesting thing about this method is that it gets people to actually do the deed. Well, well, do you know what? The, the, the funny thing is it, it gets them to do something which is not the deed. And I think that's probably where the beauty is. It gets somebody to do a thing that they don't feel like is putting down their pet cat. Yeah. It's, but it's pro it often, in many cases, it'll be the first conversation they've ever had with their pet cat. Yes. Uh, which is why in the McKinsey thing, they're called dogs, not because they were shit, but because they were the CEO's pet. Right. And that's why as in the portfolio, they, they survived. And in my experience, yeah, if that conversation is, in, is the first time you've had it, sometimes that employee just goes, it's really shit. I'm crap at this. I should go now, shouldn't I? And you say, yes. But I've actually had people where they've gone, well, no, 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 that's not, no, you, I need to give you six more weeks. And you're like, oh, no, they, they quit and you kept them. Yeah, so the people that I work with don't do that because I warn them in advance. <laughs> I say, you're going to have this conversation and they won't do it during the conversation, but maybe a day or two later, probably about 60% of the time, they're going to resign. Yes. And you're going to let them. Yes. 
So we, so notice here's the problem that we have is that we're really bad at decision-making when we're in it. Meaning when we're like in the moment, right? Like in the, in the sense of like, how are you at eating healthy when there's an open box of chocolates in front of you, right? We're not really good at that, but we're pretty good in advance. Willpower just deserts us. That's right. So we're very good in advance. If I, if I say I'm going to walk in this room and I know for a fact there's going to be an open box of chocolates and I'm not going to eat them. I'm going to bring stuff with me that's going to be healthy and I'm committing to this. And by the way, I'm going to tell my buddy over here that I'm not eating them also because I'm going to tell them how I'm like changing my lifestyle and being healthy. The chances that you don't eat the chocolates now have really drastically gone up. So it's just this thinking in advance. So what we're doing here is instead of sort of repeatedly in the moment going, ah, my, my PA is crap, right? And then sort of like not really planning anything out. I'm saying, look, I don't want you to fire your PA today because I understand that you're incapable of that. But I want you to fire your PA in six weeks. So we're going to do the open box of chocolates trick. And we're going to say, imagine it's six weeks from now and you walk in a room and there's an open box of chocolates. What what is it? What does this world look like? Like, let's create this deadline. What does this world look like? Go talk to your your employee. And then what happens is that the employee very often realizes that they're never going to achieve the good stuff and they leave. And and the thing, of course, that you know, Dom, is like, it's better for everybody. Most importantly, it's better for the employee because, and I think that this is what people lose sight of, is that if the employee is unhappy, if they're not, you know, which they are, if they're not doing a good job, they know they're not doing a good job and you're not allowing them, you are denying them the feedback that they need for personal improvement so that they can go and find a job in which they will do better and be happier and find, you know, personal fulfillment and, you know, fulfillment through their career. You you aren't allowing them to do that. So you're now acting as a blocker for that person's personal and career growth. Um, and so you're doing a disservice to them. It, it's, it, you know, but we're not very good at thinking ahead in that way. The other thing that I was thinking when you were talking earlier was about uh, recency bias and whether social media has had a huge impact, you know, because now, you know, my wife will see a, a thing on online about some small child being abducted in New Zealand. And so that increases her tension about stranger abduction, whereas, you know, I think it's been three people a year forever in the UK or, you know, everybody's panicking about people dying of anaphylactic shock as a result of peanut allergy. And it's been eight people a year forever in the UK. And so it seems to be more people with it, but no, no more people dying. And, and that, you know, COVID's a great example of that. You know, people's perception of risk is terrible and influenced by a whole load of things that they're not Maybe we just, we haven't evolved to filter through these because over-indexing on risk means we didn't get eaten by lions. It was when we thought if it was the wind in the bushes, oh, lion, run away. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this, you know, it's a false positive versus false negative problem, like sensitivity versus specificity. Specificity is uh, getting it exactly right, right? So um, specificity is going to create lots of false negatives because what you're trying to do, like, I want to make sure it's a lion. And then 
sensitivity is just, I want to make sure I don't get eaten. So I'm going to have lots of incidents. I'm, I'm going to overreact to the environment. I'm going to think way more things are lions. And what we want to do is try to get a good balance between the two, right? So um, we can think about this in terms of COVID tests, right? So uh, specificity is going to be like, it's going to get you if you have COVID, but what that means is it's going to have a very high false negative rate if you're overly specific, where sensitivity is going to be wants to be highly sensitive to, to COVID, but that's going to give you lots of false positives. And what we're trying to do is come up with a test that's both specific and at the appropriate level of sensitivity. But as you just pointed out, we're not good at that. So, but there's a reason for that, right? Like if you ate a berry that was poisonous, you died. So maybe you just don't eat berries, even though only some of them will actually kill you. If you hear rustling in the grass, you know, run away, even though mostly that's going to be the wind. It's not mostly going to be lions. That's not really the way that we're wired, which creates a lot of problems with what is that? That's a forecasting problem right? Like I get some sort of information, there's rustling in the grass and I have to forecast the probability that that's a lion. So that's what I have to do. And we're just very bad at it. Not only that, but we focus on the downside, probably also wired for that. That's loss aversion. And so we focus on the risks much more than we focus on the actual benefits and the upside um, in a way that's quite asymmetric. So that's an issue. But then also there's just this problem of we focus on our own personal experience. Right. So like if we know someone who died of a peanut allergy, we're going to think that they're much more common than they are. We're going to be much more worried about that as a risk for people because we personally experienced it. And you'll hear people arguing this way all the time where you're offering them data about something and they say, yeah, but I know someone. But this happened to me. Right. And what they're losing sight of, and this is something that Michael Mobison talks about really beautifully, is that the way that we generally make decisions is there's some piece of information, we take our own experience, we merge those things together, um, and then we come up with an answer. And we forget that there should be a middle step. And the middle step is what are the base rates? So that's what you were pointing out, right? Like what's the base rate for uh, people dying of anaphylactic shock from a peanut allergy, as an example? And what we can do is exactly what you just said, is we can look year by year, right? Like, as a, as a percentage of the population, what does the death rate by peanuts look like? And we can see, has that changed over time? We can go and look at that data and see. And it's basically when we think about base rates, we're saying what's true of the world in general or what's true in the, of the world in a situation con- similar to the one I'm considering or of other people in a situation um, similar to the one I'm considering. So what you're telling me, and I haven't looked it up, is that the base rate for death by peanut has not actually changed. It's remained incredibly stable, which means that there hasn't been any paradigm shift. There hasn't been anything in particular that's that's changed about human beings, right? Um, it could be, for example, that we're much better at spotting peanut allergies, and that's why we see more of them, just as an example, but it, it's not changing the death rate. Sometimes, though, you would figure out what's true of the world in general, And then you would say, but things have actually changed. So an example would be, if we think about in America, in particularly the Florida region of America, um, so the the Southeast, we can look at what the probability is that a category three hurricane hits that area in a given year. And that has changed, 
right? Why? Because I can look at the historic base rate and I can see that in the last five years or so that that probability that that occurs has actually increased. Um, and we know why, because the water's warmer. So, so there was actually something specific that changed about the world. So when you say something like, well, peanut allergies have gotten much more dangerous. What you have to ask yourself is what's the causal mechanism? Like, why would that be true? That something so significant has changed about humans, right? So that's that's kind of like the way that you would think about it. So um, you'd have to have introduced something different into the system. So, you know, lung cancer increases. Uh, did people, you know, did people start smoking a, a lot or something, right? Like that, that would tell you that you would go, you wouldn't look at the base rates from the 1600s for lung cancer. You would want to, you'd want to know since people started smoking, what's the probability? And then as they start to go down, you'd say, well, okay, people have stopped smoking now. Let me use use the period in which people have stopped smoking in order to figure this out. Yeah. I, Annie, I thought we'd end up talking about poker and I don't think we've mentioned it once. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. You've got uh, a great book called Thinking in Bets, which is around your, how did you take, what did you play poker for? 10 years, did you say? No, 18. 18 years, professional poker playing to put your, pay for your kids' kids' education. Well, no, I mean, I didn't have children when I started playing, but it eventually did pay for my kids' education. No, I, st I started playing poker because I left graduate school and um, I, I needed money for myself, for me personally, because it was only me. Right. Yeah. So that's why I started playing. But I, luckily, I was pretty good at it. And um, I did that until 2012. And listening, uh, certainly because I listened to it, the, the book last week, thankfully, there are lots of people who play poker who, are, who think they're good at it, but aren't, which is, I guess, why somebody who thinks, thinks a lot and is good at it can, can make money. Because um, for people to win, somebody has to, be a, somebody has to lose. It's, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. It's different than other, you know, people kind of put it in the gambling category, but it's not gambling. It's it's trading. You're you're basically a trader. So you're trading against other people. And the thing that you're trading is the value of your hand, basically. What is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, this is something very specific. But I mean, there's so many things I wish I'd have known that now that <laughs> this is why I wrote a book called Quit, by the way, was because like this is always the case. And and the option to quit is what allows you to actually react to that. Um, the thing, thing that I most wish that I knew separate apart from things like the power of base rates and stuff like that, which is just important for decision-making. I wish I had known when I quit graduate school that my advisors were totally okay with it because I carried around like a lot of guilt around leaving graduate school. I'd been there for five years. I felt that I had failed the program that my, you know, my, I felt a lot of shame around that. And then when I reconnected with my advisor, Lila Gleitman, who's wonderful, um, she made it very clear that she was just happy for me. And so I, I'd i been like walking around feeling like I had really let this woman down who I really, really loved and feeling a lot of shame about it, guilt about it. And then, you know, we reconnected. I got 10 amazing years with her where we had lunch every single week, um, except for during COVID where we talked um, on the phone. And, you know, she's one of the loves of my life. And I wish that I had known earlier that she wasn't mad at me. Ah, brilliant. Brilliant. What books should people pick up and read other than thinking in bets and quit? Oh, um, well, you know, obviously I said super forecasting already. 
which is Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner. You know, it depends on how nerdy you want to get. Um, algorithms to live by is amazing. The model thinker, that's quite deep and nerdy, but that's by um, Scott Page. But I think The Success Equation by Michael Mobison is just like a fantastic book about the dual influences of luck and skill um, on decision-making. You know, Daniel Kahneman, obviously, Thinking Fast and Slow, Nudge, which is Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. I'm leaving out some amazing books, no doubt, but that's some of them. Oh, How to Change by Katie Milkman is incredible also. I think we, we didn't talk about the impact of luck but that's i see that all the time where lucky people think they were clever and then it goes and trips them up later because they were oblivious to the fact they just got lucky yeah that's that's actually a really big problem in venture whenever you're in this world that's governed by the power law um you know so you have very you know a handful of very big outcomes and most things lose you know it's like someone invests early in uber and they think they're a genius and they might be, but they also might not be, right? Chances are they're not. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not clear. It's not clear. And if you're not actually digging down into the decision process, you don't really know much, but you'll hear people say, oh, they were, you know, early into Uber as a justification for saying that they're brilliant and that they're they're somehow special um, in comparison to other people who are trying to do the same thing. And my question would be, well, why? Why were they early into Uber? Because it could be like my college roommate's a good guy and asked me if I would help with his company. And so I wrote a check. And there I would say, well, that doesn't make you brilliant. That makes you had a, a kind of an interesting college roommate. And I don't see any process. Doesn't sound like your college roommate really pitched you or you're really thinking about like, what's the quality of the market or the probability that this thing is going to be fine product market fit. Or, you know, when it might be getting to profitability, which apparently is never, but whatever, you know, so I need to know why. Tell me about the decision process. Like it, it, it's it's akin to saying like, I drove through a red light, I'm a, but I didn't get it in an accident. So therefore I'm a brilliant driver, you know? And it's like, okay, no, you, you're not. But what we do instead is we say, you didn't get in an accident there. So you're a brilliant driver, right? Instead of saying, but did you go through a green light or a red light? Yeah. And what decision made? It's the, it's the quality of their decision-making process. That's right. And and I think that what I think is really interesting is that there are environments in which people can hide in the luck, which makes it so that they don't necessarily have to examine the quality of their decision. So th- this is this is the example that I like to give. What I hear in venture a lot is um, I just know a good founder when I see one. When you say, like, what is your decision process? Like, how are you thinking about who you invest in? Um, Particularly in the earlier stages, you'll hear them say, I know a good founder when I see one. And what I say is, but what if if you were deciding whether you wanted to invest in someone who's a high-frequency trader, like an options trader? And you say, well, what's your process? How do you figure out what you're going to trade? And they said, I just know a good option when I see one. You would literally never give your money. You'd be like, what? I'm not investing in you. You know a good option when you see one? What does that even mean? And the reason why we'll accept it in one place and not another is that what we recognize in options trading is that it's very high frequency, right? Like you're getting feedback all the time. And so 
therefore, like we understand that you have to have a really good process in order to do well, that this isn't something that's magic that you need to do. I mean, you certainly have to have like a nose for like bet sizing and things like this, but you need to do the quant work to understand that you're actually going to beat the market. Um, You need to understand what the gaps are between like the pricing of the stock and the option and so on and so forth, right? Like that you're going to have to do some work because the world demands it of you. You are tethered to the skill element in a way that you aren't in venture where people will say, I just know a good founder when I see one because people know, well, I mean, there's no results for like 10 years. So you can sort of hide, you can hide in that gap, in that luck element in a way that makes it so that you don't even have to think about what a good decision process would look like in any kind of real way. And it's actually a really big problem. And I think that's part of the reason why we're, when we're in an, an environment like now, you see a lot of sort of, you know, the, the good people rise to the top, right? Like the ones that have the really good decision process rise to the top and the rest of them you'll see sort of go away because it just creates this natural culling where there's more of a demand for good process because, because obviously it's not as frothy anymore. And I think people say the same thing about hiring. What's your recruitment process? Oh, well, I just interview them. I've got, but there is more frequency there and you can tell whether people have made a right or wrong decision almost straight away. So you, you can. And what you find is that people are crap at it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all the, t- all the time. Yeah. And the more process you put on top of it, the better they get. So yes. it's true. Some people are going to be more talented than others. That's always true, right? It's going to be true in venture. It's going to be true in options trading. There's a talent factor. Are you talented at what you do? But talent enough is not uh, enough to get you into a situation where you're actually maximizing, right? Where you're, where you're actually making it so that you're winning to the decision. So what you see in hiring is that it depends on your definition of what a good hire is, but people are about 50-50 on whether they get someone um, some definition of good into the role. But when you start to lay process on top of it, you can get to 60, 65%, which is like a huge gain, right? Think about how much that's saving you as a business owner to be able to increase your accuracy by that much by laying process on top of it. And it's not denying that you're a good interviewer, right? It's not denying that you're a good talent spotter. What it's saying is we're going to put process on top of this, which is going to say, these are the things that we care about in this role. These are the qualities that we're interviewing for. That's going to discipline your bias toward people who are like you, right? Or charisma as like a driving factor or how much you gel with the person or these kinds of things that may not be predictive at all of how they're going to be as a software engineer. Right. So we're, we're trying to sort of get de-bias the situation and take the noise out of the situation to create a more accurate decision into that zone. Annie, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Oh, well, thank you. You too. I, this was a very weird and winding conversation. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I don't know whether you found it satisfying. Or not. These are the types of conversations I love because I read the book and then I interview an author and I think, well, we might talk about the book. But in this case, we actually didn't talk about the book at all. Well, well we did actually. The hiring stuff is all. Is all. Uh, okay. war, we talked about war and hiring, which are both <laughs> very much part of the book. But I I enjoy it immensely when we just have a conversation and we both enjoy it. So thank you for coming on. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It just was, I mean, it was really fun for me because it was a different type of conversation. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.